0: Sunday evenings we're looking at different doctrines what well, mean by doctrines is just teachings teachings about scriptures teachings about God and tonight we're beginning teachings about man what does the Bible specifically say about who we are as people when I say man you know I'm talking about both men and women I'm talking about humanity what does the Bible say about mankind uh, we're gonna spend six weeks looking at different teachings about man. Being tonight, but looking at our creation or origins, being made in God's image. We're going to look at our tendency or, or nature of sin. We're going to spend a week looking at the origins of sin in our universe. Where did sin come from? How did how did Satan sin? Um, what was God's relationship with that? We're going to look at spend a week looking at that. Next, we're going to look at g- issues of gender. God created them, male and female. And so, what what does that mean? How does that specifically? relate to our roles as men and women? Do we have different roles as men and women? Um, How is that reflected in today's society? We have issues of gender that come up so often. Is gender biological or is there something more than that? Um, So we're going to be talking about a number of different things about man, also man's depravity and man's inability. And uh, so this will be a good study because so many of the teachings about man are, are denied or undermined Especially by our society today, we have this we have this idea from our culture that man is basically good, and uh, the things outside of us are are really what causes bad things to happen to us, or causes us to react negatively. And so, if we we can we can we can improve as a human race, if only we can, uh, you know, provide. Uh, food for everybody, shelter for everybody, if only we could have better ed- education, if only we can have better government, uh, better police and fire, all these things, the human race is going to be better. They'd, our society at large denies sinfulness of the human soul. And so we're going to be looking at these teachings from Scripture to see how... The scriptures teach about these kinds of things. What we're going to what we're going to do, going to do it is beginning in Genesis. So, you can take your Bibles, open to Genesis 1, or you can use the scripture that I have printed out in the handout. But if you open up to Genesis 1, we're going to look at how God created man. He begins by speaking and creating light and then creating um the earth and and separating the waters from the waters and up rises the firmament separation between the clouds and the seas. And then he creates vegetation and puts the sun, moon, and stars in place and creates all the water creatures and the creatures in the sky. And then finally on the sixth day, God creates the creatures that walk on the face of the earth and he creates man. And we're going to look at what scriptures say about God creating man. Look with me at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you see your handout, the very first point that we're going to talk about tonight is the image of God. The image of God. It says here that man was, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? And creating God's likeness, you know there has been people in the past who have tried to well the image is this thing and the likeness is this thing. And they they try to make a separation between image and light like, and, and likeness based on these Hebrew words. But these Hebrew words are, are repeating the same idea. Such a distinction is just not not able to be sustained as you look at the biblical account. So as God says, "Let us make man in, in, in our image and in our likeness." What is God referring to here? What does it mean? Well, in the context and and how the, the readers would have understood as a read genesis is an image in the ancient world were simply statues intended to represent someone, often being a god or a king. And so here God is saying, I'm going to make man to represent me here on earth, to be my representatives, to be a reflection of who I am, my likeness, my, my image. Now, finite, there's, there's always a cr- creator-creature distinction, What we have in mankind is a reflection of who God is. And not just a reflection of who He is, but we are His representatives. That's why God gives us this command to go forward and subdue and exercise dominion, to do what God does in, in a universal sense. We are to do here in a limited sense, in an earthly scope, here on earth, as God's representatives. Okay, so we are finite replicas of God's infinite qualities, now, what, what does that consist of? How, how are we, how do we reflect God? What is it about God that is reflected in mankind? This is not just Christians. This is everybody in mankind. Okay, everybody around the world. How, how are we reflective of who God is? Well, you can think of things like intellectual ability. You know, things that are, that distinguish us from the animals. Intellectual ability, moral purity, a spiritual nature, creativity, the ability to make ethical choices, an immortality of the soul. All of these things we share a likeness with God. Okay, this, this is not meant to be exhaustive, but what I want to do tonight is look at a few of these qualities, and um, not to not to exhaust what it means to be me in the image of God. But look at a few of, of some of the major ones here, and you can follow A, B, and I think there's C. Yeah, A, B, and C here on your handouts as we look at some of the qualities that we possess, that God has bestowed upon us and given to us as his representatives here to reflect his glory and his personhood here in the world. So the very first one, letter A, exercising lordship. Okay, to be made in the image of God means that, that we exercise lordship, God exercises lordship over all, and we in a sense, in a finite sense, exercise lordship as the human race. This is also what's called the cultural or dominion mandate, the lordship mandate, and this is the lordship mandate. Genesis 126, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 129, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. These shall be your dominion. You shall exercise the plant and to cultivate, to labor. Genesis 2.15, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God exercises lordship over all creation. He is the only one who sends the rains, who controls the wind and the weather and the waves. But yet he bestows upon us a finite sense of lordship where we plant and we cultivate, still dependent on God for the growth, but we exercise lordship over his creation. Now, there's three ways that we exercise lordship and that it's under the lordship of God. The first one is concerning God Okay, When we think of our lordship concerning God, what it means to be lords or to exercise dominion under the authority of God means that we worship him through our obedience. We rely on him. We have fellowship with him. We, we, we have reverence and awe for who he is, dependence on him for all that we do, and, and have joy in him. This is what it means for us to be lords underneath God's lordship. The second one, concerning the earth. Concerning the earth, what does it mean to have lordship Concerning the earth, related to the earth, well, we are called to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over the fish, birds, and every living creature, okay? This does not mean that we can just do whatever we want with the earth. We are to be good stewards of what God has given to us, but we are called to subdue and have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living creature. The third one, concerning mankind, Okay, concerning mankind, how does our lordship exercise when it comes to relationships with one another? Well, we are called to fill the earth through marriage and through procreation. We are called to labor, to serve one another. And so this is how we are lords under the authority of God of, over this earth and how it relates to all of mankind. Okay, we're called to be stewards of this earth. it means to be made in the image of God. To be lords, to be stewards over the earth that God has made, and to be his representatives here. Okay, sometimes this is called the cultural mandate because as, as human beings, we are to be ones that are spreading beauty. You know, music and art, these are good things for us to be invested in, to spend our time doing. But we must do it under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we are, we are to make this world beautiful for our great creator, the Lord Jesus we ought to make our families beautiful and our church beautiful and these things and and, and engage in marriage and, and procreation and have all of these things that we are engaging in because we are given dominion over this earth. Now, as we realize our task to exercise dominion over the earth, we realize that sin has entered this world and puts a real wrench into the gears. This world and ourselves have been affected by sin and its corruption. Fall brought suffering and sin and chaos. And God's solution here is not, you know, government. God's solution is not here city-states. God's solution is not more education. God's solution for Adam was to exercise dominion, he and his wife, and, and to be his representatives on the earth. Now, because of sin has entered the world... What has God done? Well, God, before the foundation of the world, planned the Lord Jesus Christ, really would be the fulfillment of this cultural, this lordship, this dominion mandate. It's not us who are to rise up and to form government and to exercise dominion over the earth. That's not our place. Our place is now to see Jesus Christ accomplish that. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to fulfill this dominion mandate, this cultural mandate, this lordship mandate. He's gonna return, he's gonna set up his kingdom and bring with him the new heavens and the new earth and be God's representative here on earth in the flesh. And he will rule and reign righteously and subdue the earth and do away with sin. That's the great hope we have to look forward to. And as a church, we're called now to go and to spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That people would make peace with Jesus Christ before his return. So that's the, the lordship mandate, cultural mandate. That's what it means to be part made in the image of God. B, second thing it means we made it in the image of God. Exercising language, rationality, and relationship. Exercising language, rationality, and relationship. And language. These things, languages, rationality, relationship, these things are all, all interrelated. That's why I'm dealing them here with one point. When we think of abstract thinking, conceptual thinking, this is something that we possess that the animal world does not have. Like dominion given to man, and, but God is the ultimate Lord, God gives speech to man, but yet God is the ultimate speaker. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's God's voice, God's speech is so powerful that he can speak the world, the universe, into existence. And he's also given us that power to speak, not to speak things into existence, but to communicate, to communicate with one another and to have these words that are so very powerful. And, and it's interesting that as God speaks the world into existence, he speaks and he gives us ears to hear, And the very first thing he does when he creates man is speak to him. It's amazing. Uh, Genesis 1, 27, 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, okay, just created. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 2, we have Adam exercising his ability to speak by naming all the animals. As God praised the animals before him, God, Adam uses his speech and his rationality to name each and every creature that God had created. Genesis two nineteen and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. <clears throat> okay, language is of such powerful capacity. I, I don't know if we realize just how powerful language is and speech is and, and this gift that God has given to us, this great gift that God has to speak and to create with his words. You know, think about the the gospel, how that goes forth, the power of God's spoken word. When God speaks, he can raise the dead. He can bring new life. Okay, God's words are so powerful, and he's bestowed upon us a like gift, um, a quality, a finite replica of his infinite power of language. Now, language is of such powerful capacity. I want you to consider Genesis 11, 6, and 7, talking about the Tower of Babel. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Language is so very powerful, and yet it's so it's used for perversion. It's used for immorality. It's used in rebellion. And so this good gift that God has given to us, man has taken it and corrupted it. And man has, is now using this wonderful gift of language to rebel against God. So what does God do? He confuses the languages. Because language is such a powerful thing that if we all spoke the same language, that he said, what, what, what else are they going to accomplish? It's only the beginning. They're going to accomplish so much and not good things, but rather rebellion that's in their heart. James 3 reminds us of the power of tongue and the power of language. Look at James 3 as we read through this passage. Again, a longer passage, so do your best to, to stay focused to the text. Here we are, James 3, verse number 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Power of the tongue. Look, verse four. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we saw that in the past few weeks. In verse six, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting a fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness or the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's saying there is that language is so powerful. So as Christians, we must bridle our tongue. And notice how he he says why we ought to bridle our tongue when we speak to others. Because of the likeness of God, the image of God that is in mankind. And so we ought to be careful for our tongues because language and our speech is a gift given to us by God, yet it is so powerful for destruction. We saw it here in Babel, we see it in James, the power of common language, the power of the tongue. Don't we see this today in our world of telecommunications and social media? Don't we see this today when we, we see that that through translators and, and, and we have a, a global network like the internet? where ideas and language can spread so fast even across boundaries of country, across ethnic barriers, across language barriers, and now as they as they have our phones, our tablets, our computers, we're being bombarded by this language and how, how quick it is for people across a whole country, across the whole world to unite in a common rebellion against God. We see we see great things happening through the world of social media, as the power of language is unleashed. And the power of ideas are unleashed. This is the same thing as what God was saying back in Genesis 11. Look at the people. There's, there's going to be no end to what they're able to do because they are so united and their language are speaking in one voice. We have the same thing happening today, aided with the power of technology. Think about how what our society has gone through in terms of its morality, in terms of its ethic, in just the last, what, 10, 20 years? As soon as we have the advent of easy communication, of easy language, consider where our culture is now to when it was then. So this this technological revolution, this revolution of language has actually brought a revolution of immorality, especially sexual immorality and other kinds of filth and disgusting things that people are using this beautiful gift of language that God has given to us. So as Christians, James gives us a reminder not to participate in this kind of language the world uses, but to bridle our tongues, to speak with kindness and tenderness and gentleness, and even to people, especially to people who disagree with us as Christians. I would love if our church, um, even though we are reviled in a sense in our culture, because we are so countercultural in terms of our views on marriage in terms of our views on manhood and womanhood in terms of our views on homosexuality in terms of our views on gender that even though we're so countercultural that they could not say a word against us in terms of our speech that even though they hate our ideas and really the ideas of scripture they say but we speak so kindly and we're not angry we're not haughty i would love For that to be our example. And that should be our example. That's what we're called to be as Christians. To have speech seasoned with salt. Especially to those who disagree. Let's strive to that end. Because we're made in the image of God. And he's given us language as a good and righteous gift. C. The third part of God's image want to focus on. Exercising holiness and righteousness. Exercising holiness and righteousness. And righteousness. So exercising lordship, exercising language. The Bible speaks about us being recreated into the image of God and it describes the image of God as being holy, blameless. Look at Ephesians 4.20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does it mean to be in the likeness and image of God? True righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed or recreated in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay? We are being transformed as believers in Lord Jesus Christ into this image of God that is typified by righteousness and holiness. And we see this exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 Christ is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what the image of God looks like? Perfectly look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, so we're being renewed, sanctified into the image of God in righteousness and holiness, the knowledge of God. And then we here we have Christ exemplifying, typifying God's image, God's nature and his likeness in human form. And those two ideas of what we're becoming and who Christ is, is brought together in Romans eight twenty nine. It says this, for those whom he foreknew, talking about God, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, we're being transformed back into the image of God, righteousness and holiness. And where's our destination? The image of Jesus Christ. We're being transformed and made looking like him. And what does it look like to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ? Well, Galatians 5 tells us the fruits of the Spirit, which is really the fruits of Christ's likeness, his character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These, this is what it looks like to be created in the image of God after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Next part. Why is the image of God important? Okay? Why is the image of God important? Point number two. Why is the image of God important? This is not just an academic topic. It's not just, well, yeah, that's that's good information to know a little bit about the image of God and what that means in Genesis 1. Uh, It's not just things that stuff into our minds. The image of God is so relevant... To how we live our lives as Christians, so relevant to how we interact in this world. And here's the biggest reason. write written on your paper, the dignity, the value and worth of all men, all people, doesn't matter what social class, doesn't matter who your mother and father were, what your ethnicity is, what your language is, what your IQ is. Doesn't matter how small you are, whether you're still in the womb of your mother or not, whether you are elderly, whether you don't remember who you are anymore. Those things do not matter. Every single person is made in the image of God and therefore, why it's so important? Because everyone has value, dignity, and worth because of that. We do not bestow value, dignity, and worth on another person. They have that Already because God has bestowed it upon them because they are made in his image. This doctrine is so very important because this doctrine is the foundation for any kind of anti-discrimination, any kind of equal rights, any kind of peace and prosperity, any kind of um, abolition of, of slavery. It's all rooted in every single individual having value and worth and dignity because they are human beings created in the image of God, such an important doctrine. Roman, or sorry, Psalm eight four. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? God bestows upon man amazing honor, even though we are dust. Genesis nine six. Look how. The image of God is related to the command not to murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So why is the is the Bible here in Genesis 9-6 calling for capital punishment? For God made man in his own image. Why is it wrong to murder? Because that person is made in the image of God. They have value, dignity, and worth. They are representatives of God. They reflect God in his glory and his beauty. And so they should not be destroyed. Should not be killed, whether that's in the womb, whether they're in the hospital dying of cancer, whether they're elderly. Because they're created in the image of God. God made man in his own image. So we respect all fellow man because we are all made in the image of God. Discrimination based on ethnicity, gender, social class is all wrong because we are made in the image of God. Murder is wrong. Not because it's a social construct and it's going to help propagate the race. Word is wrong because we are made in the image of God. And when someone is killed, someone is murdered, their image of God is being attacked. And it's so really God is being attacked. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the evolutionary way of looking at the world. Because we're bombarded as Christians that we're anti-science, anti-intellectual, not rational. Uh, just a leap of faith, leap in the dark. Uh, really of a, of a bygone era, we got our heads stuck in the stands, we belong in the Middle Ages, uh, bigoted. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that we're called. Um, and, and, but if the evolutionary view, which is, which is pretty much accepted across the board in the Western world, uh, not, not all around the world, but in the, definitely in the Western world, evolutionary view is accepted, we no longer have this doctrine, this teaching that, that man is made in the image of God, therefore every single person has value, dignity, and worth before God. That truth gets thrown out the window and it gets replaced with the idea that we have ancestors who are monkeys and we are just raw brutes who have managed to survive the process of evolution. And we have differences in our culture and society. We have kids that are born with Down syndrome that are terminated now, what they call it. Pregnancy ended in the womb of their mother because a child with Down syndrome is inferior than someone who doesn't have Down syndrome. That is the evolutionary way of thinking applied to abortion. We have Planned Parenthood setting up the vast majority of their clinics in black and Latino and other communities because the the founder of Planned Parenthood is a well-documented racist and wanted... To see these these population groups in the United States, the blacks and Latinos be controlled and through a, the use of abortion, so that we could have the white people continue their prominence and continue their reproduction this is this is what behind these these ideas that we have in our culture, this evolutionary way of thinking, and this same evolutionary way of thinking has even been here in Alberta and I want to read to you a quote. Um, that I got off, uh, it's off, it's off Wikipedia, and it's talking about eugenics here in Alberta. Okay, eugenics is, is talking about uh, improving the genes of the human race, improving this, ev- using evolutionary model and giving evolution a bit of a boost by getting rid of people, by sterilizing them, uh, by killing them, who, are not, who we don't deem are fit, and then encouraging those who are strong and healthy and smart to have children that way we can continue forward in having this great and wonderful human race. This is the, and this is what this is the natural product of evolution. So for those who think I'm just fear-mongering or I'm using examples that are just way out there, and this is not going to happen. this already has happened, and it's happened in our country. okay, look at this quote: Eugenics movements bounced up in many European and American jurisdictions in response to historical, social, scientific, economic, and political processes occurring at the time. Francis Galton invented the term eugenics in 1883, building it from its Latin root roots, meaning good in birth or noble in heredity. The science of eugenics was concerned with the improvement of the human standard and focused on the influence that would give the more suitable races or strain of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable, eugenists were concerned with managing the direct. Sorry, were concerned with managing the direction human evolution would take. Natural selection, about which Galton's cousin Charles Darwin's wrote, was insufficient to deal with the needs of modern society. It left solely to nature. eugenicists argued the dangerous classes who were thought to have a high volume reproductive rate would take over. Ideas promoted abroad were quick to gain popularity in Canada in the early 1900s. The most damaging sterilization program in Canadian history was afforded via the passing of the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act of 1928. From the years 1928 to 1972, sterilizations, both compulsory and optional, were performed on nearly 3,000 unfit individuals of varying ages and ethnicities. In total, over 2,800 procedures were performed. And these procedures were mostly performed um, on our aboriginal peoples here in Alberta. We, are, we already have them segregated. And the, and the idea behind that is not to have that uh, influence the evolutionary process. And so the eugenicists push for segregation and they also push for sterilization. And while these ideas are no longer popular in our society today, this law was stopped in 1972... Uh, I'm thankful that people see the errors of these ways. And it's not because evolution has taught them these ways are, are in error. But rather, it's the biblical idea that we are made in God's image and that we all have dignity and value and worth. And by taking someone who has a less than normal IQ, as we define normal, and by sterilizing them so they're unable to have children against their will. Or if someone has a disease and we think, well, that disease, we don't want to see that propagates. So we're going to help the evolutionary process and we're going to sterilize these who you're unable to have children. That is an evolutionary idea that is still alive and well today. We still, as a nation, desire, and now with our latest government, desire to fund abortion overseas. Again, because if we can control the population, now we're going to have greater prosperity. We're going to have those people who... Who are not poor and impoverished, having children, but those who are able to afford children, those who have good education—they're the ones that are going to have the births. They're the ones that are going to populate this earth. The same ideas are alive and well here today. We have—we have, it, we have it seen in our education system where a government decide, d- desires. Uh, to force their education system on every single person because, again, their way of looking at the world, their evolutionary model, their ideas of sexuality and gender are right, and they want to impose that upon everyone. And we have governments around the world who would take away children from parents, again, because they want to cultivate this one race that is going to this one direction, evolutionary thought and principles at work. Now, it is the Image of God in man is the biblical idea that is really going to uproot racism. That's really going to uproot discrimination. That's really going to uproot these mass sterilizations and killing people who are innocent just because they are different. It's a biblical worldview. The pro life movement is a movement based on biblical principles that we are made in the image of God and we are image bearer of God at the time of conception. The fight against the pro life movement, even at the end of life is based on biblical principles. The abo- abolition of slavery was led by Christians and biblical principles that all of us are, are made in the image of God. The civil rights movement in the United States, again, was not just a, a black movement, but it was a movement of black people, African Americans, who understood the word of God and understood they were made in the image of God, just like the white man. And so the civil rights movement was a spiritual reformation was the idea that we are made in the image of God, therefore have equal dignity, value, and worth. So different than the evolutionary model that is being taught across the board in our society today. Now, I'm thankful that our culture is inconsistent, that are not running with this evolutionary model and continue to try to direct natural, so-called natural evolutionary model. I'm thankful they're inconsistent because they are made in the image of God. And so God's law... And God's goodness is still impressed upon their hearts. No matter how how marred it is. No matter how how much they rebel God. They are still made in God's image. And so the image of God is so important. And we must also um, treat everyone with dignity and value and worth. Never to be discriminatory. Never to be racist. Because we are all made in God's image. That's a biblical Christian idea. The third thing I want to look at tonight. What is God's purpose in making man. This will be brief. What is God's purpose in making man? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what is God's purpose in making man? God's purpose in making man. Why did he create man? For, for his own glory and for our joy. Okay? We see that in the scripture. God created man for his own glory. Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why did God make us for his glory? Why did he redeem us for his glory? glory. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, says Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to restore to us life, abundant life, a joyful life, a life with God as it tended to be. And what is this abundant life that Jesus came to restore? It's life with God. It's to have God. Look at Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. Why are we made? Why do we exist? For God's glory and to enjoy him forever. We're made to be in His presence. This should be a longing for us, a desire for us. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm eighty four How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Revelation four eleven. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. And were created in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things, including us. To him be glory forever and ever, Amen. This is why we were created to enjoy our God. He's created us to enjoy Him. He's created us to reflect His glory and His goodness, to praise His mercy and His wonder. And this is what Jesus Christ does for us. We talked about this morning, coming the new covenant, shedding His blood. He restores us, reconciles us to God so that our purpose in life is restored. We exist to be with God. He is our joy. He is our end. He is our goal. This is why we're here. Let's live like it. Let's pray.